All right, 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, we are in the final week of our series, and the tagline is something that we've been uh, walking through every week, talking about how um, we are exiles, embracing who we are as exiles. Uh, that's not always an easy thing, because an exile is someone who is necessarily powerless. Uh, they don't really have um, the kind of uh, power and influence that someone who is not an exile. Um, and we know that Peter is not talking to literal exiles because many of these people were living in their, their homes uh, and in, in their homelands. Um, but he was talking about it from a metaphorical sense that we are exiles in this world. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're trying to be at his disciple and walk in his ways, uh, this text is reminding us one of our identities in Jesus is we live as exiles in this world. We are ultimately powerless ones uh, in this world, and we are, in fact, uh, at our most powerful when we are depending on the one who has true power, uh, and that is the Lord. And so embracing who we are has been a part of this series. Also tell of who he is. Um, and we've been talking through what it looks like to actually tell of who he is, uh, to tell the gospel about Jesus to people actually um, doesn't, always, um, doesn't always look like a formulaic way of saying the gospel message. Uh, it can look that way, but more importantly, what Peter is saying, when you're kind of living a life as an exile, uh, when you're not really in a position of power, when you're marginalized on the edges of society or maybe just being pushed to the margins of society, um, you really have to, you're forced to live a different way. You're absolutely forced to live a different way. And so he goes through this text just kind of giving us the postures uh, of the heart that those who are exiles live with so that they can, in authentic, genuine ways, tell of who he is. Um, I won't go into great detail, but what we've gone through over the last few weeks is he's basically told us to live a hopeful life, um, be a culture of hopefulness, that the people of God, no matter where they stand or sit in society, are a hopeful people, almost annoyingly so. Like, like you have no reason to hope. Why are you so hopeful? Um, that kind of a hope, a hope that is, that is animated, that, that really has no reason to exist. Um, we live holy lives, a culture uh, of holiness, of Christ's likeness, resisting being led by the nose, by our own desire or by what the culture wants to uh, drag you in and out of. Um, and then we talked about living um, uh, lives of subversive suffering, not just lives of suffering. Some of us got that down. Some of us can live a life of suffering really well because we have suffered really, really well. Um, but there's a difference between just suffering and living a subversive suffering life, which we talked about a few weeks back. And, and, and the idea there is really just we're resisting the idea that all suffering ends in somehow the enemy gaining victory and somehow death getting the best of us, somehow all the things that are sad, sorry, and sick in life gaining the upper hand it, in a way that doesn't make sense. Subversive suffering is actually a victorious suffering. It's a suffering, again, that has no reason to exist. It really shouldn't exist in its form that the gospel brings it into. Um, but yet he says that kind of subversive suffering is absolutely countercultural and different and unique. 
and can't help but gain others' attention or at least catch their attention and go, what is that to some extent? So with that being said, uh, what about today? Well, I would submit to you that since he begins this last section with the subject of church leadership, and he does begin it with that, doesn't end it there, but he begins it there, at least part of the theme in these last verses actually direct us towards living a life of true, hear me, true soul-shaping influence. True soul-shaping influence. See, the term influence is likely not one that you would expect from the First Peter text. It's not actually in there, technically. He speaks of influence, around influence, but he didn't actually use that term. It's more of a modern term anyway that we use, um, given that it's written to people without power. You know, you usually equate power and influence together, right? Uh, you don't always think of influence minus power. But Peter seems to be encouraging them to embrace their powerlessness their powerlessness all through the First Peter text is a part of the way that the gospel ironically works powerfully through them. Embrace their powerlessness because power will come to them, but it'll be in the form of God the Holy Spirit. However, that is why I use the phrase, because it seems unexpected, I use the phrase true soul-shaping influence. True soul-shaping influence. Influence. You see, we often might associate influence and the ambition that it takes to gain influence um, with the building of platforms um, or fame or being known or, or building a voice for yourself or a product brand for yourself to get out there. Um, and and there, there's, some, there's some places for that, you know, just for uh, sales or, or, or maybe you provide a service that you just need to get the word out, you know. So it's not all bad, but, but there's a sense in which there's also a personal platform building. Uh, that's just rampant in our world today. Everyone is trying to gain their kind of carve out their voice niche in the world and to make sure amongst the many voices just out there yelling, screeching, um, trying to be heard that theirs somehow is heard. And all that is fair because that is happening. Um, platform building is not something that we are, um, we are immune to in the Christian community either. Um, unfortunately, many of my peers um, have spent a better part of the last 20 years building platforms while the time their soul was rotting from the inside out. Um, and so I have a lot to say about platform building um, that I won't say today. But um, suffice it to say, I am not a platform building fan. And um, having said that, um, I do think there is a redeemed way in which God uses ambition for us to gain a godly kind of influence, a godly kind of influence, not a platform built influence, a godly kind of influence. But as we've said time and again, if the gospel is true, the gospel completely changes and reinterprets the ways in which we think of and pursue a life of influence. And so that's what we want to find out about today, what that looks like. So let's take a look at 1 Peter. I'm going to read the whole text and come back to portions of it afterwards. Let's start in verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Here's what I am exhorting you to. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Now, through Silvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, that's just the Bible's way of saying, she who is under a foreign ruler, the church who is under the rulers of the age, of the day, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love, Peace to all, all of you who are in Christ. Really interesting text, really good text, really good way to close out our time together in this writing today. Um, I have a lot to say about the subject of influence. Uh, Before getting to it, I do want to make a few comments, uh, some broad comments on the text itself. Sometimes... Certain texts will give us little tidbits uh, that may have nothing to do with kind of our main theme for the day uh, that we're pulling from the text. But, you know, we, we could really talk a lot about a lot of things in this text, and we could be here for hours. Uh, there's just richness in the scriptures that goes so deep. Um, I could do First Peter as a series again starting next week, and we could cover completely different ground and territory, friends. Uh, this is just the way the Bible is. But I do feel compelled just to hit on three quick things that I at least observe in this text that I won't get into in our main theme, but I feel are worth me mentioning. Uh, the first one is this. Um, he starts off by exhorting the elders, um, the elders among the church that he's writing to, and he exhorts them to actually act in an elder-like way, to act in ways that were godly and expected godly manners for an elder. And I say all that just to point out what may be painfully obvious to you, but is actually important for me to point out. Elders are not a finished product of God. They are still growing. They are still struggling. They are still an incomplete work of God that need exhortation by those amongst them and by those who may be technically their superior in an apostle like Peter, their elder in age. They are not a finished work. And I think that's important for you to realize. 
or to really come to grips with if you haven't before, or to maybe consider and to actually keep as a matter of prayer for your elders and pastors because they are not finished products. And we are, we are going to get to, here in about 30 days, install, hopefully, God willing, install a brand new unfinished product elder. Uh, Greg Bursey is now on a countdown clock. Uh, you have 30 days to speak now or forever hold your peace. You can take him to coffee. You can take him to lunch. You can go meet him at the park. Whatever he's willing to do, you can fill up his calendar, but make sure that he's vetted and you feel comfortable with him being elder at your church. That's your responsibility in the eldership process. Did you know that? That's your responsibility. It's not your responsibility to be in the stands criticizing and saying, he doesn't match up. It's your responsibility to get on the field and go find out and vet if you need vetting. All right? His character has been lived out in front of us. We trust him. Me and Kim have agreed we want to present him to you today. And I want you to know that we're presenting him to you as a unfinished product. No development in the world will create a perfect man who can elder as a perfect elder. Do you understand that? This text just reminds us, it may be a plain reminder, but it's a reminder we sometimes need. Second thing I see in this text that's really helpful, uh, you may know this because we teach this sometimes, I don't know if we've taught it recently in our, in our uh, membership um, classes, but um, some churches use the term elder and pastor as two separate terms. Um, scripturally speaking, um, I have yet to find a cogent um, argument um, from the scriptures that separates those terms and separates those roles. Uh, and I just thought I might use this occasion to point out this is actually one of two to three texts that we can point to in the scriptures that actually uses those terms interchangeably. Interchangeably. In fact, if you missed it, let me show it to you. I exhort the elders, that's presbyteros, if you care about the, the, the Greek language of it all, and, and what that is is a presbyter, an elder, a presbyter, the elders, presbyters, presbyteros among you as a fellow, elder, presbyter, presbyteros, and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as those as, who shares in the glory about to be revealed, shepherd God's flock. Also a synonym with pastor the flock. Pastor the flock. Shepherd, pastor the flock among you, not overseeing same word or same root, word root that's used for oversight or an overseer in 1 Timothy and Titus, uh, which is episkopos, which is also uh, how we translate the word bishop. Bishop. And so what we have seen here, he has now used interchangeably, synonymously, these three terms, pastor, elder, bishop, together. Our church has always viewed them as a singular role, uh, different angles or different ways in which that role is lived out. Uh, however, this is one of three texts in our Bible that actually reminds us uh, how the New Testament viewed this role uh, in the young church. Um, last thing I want to mention, uh, interesting to point out in this text, at the end he, uh, he says, greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all you who are with Christ. But before that he says, 
uh, not along, along with the church, uh, Mark sends greetings. Um, this is John Mark. It's interesting because in the early church, I don't know if you know this, but leaders and leadership actually had a lot of conflict uh, on occasion. Uh, I, I, that's probably overstating it. They didn't have a lot of conflict. They had some conflict uh, here and there. And I think it's important to understand that leadership isn't absent of conflict sometimes. Um, in fact, John Mark uh, would have been, um, if you know the, the name, the Apostle Paul, um, he was actually with him on the first missionary journey. They went out. John Mark actually abandoned them midstream. He bailed on it, did a real immature thing, uh, and left the missionary journey. And uh, as a result, when they went on the second missionary journey, he tried to bring him along. And, um, or not he did, Paul didn't. Uh, his partner Barnabas tried to bring him along, and Paul would have none of it. He goes, no, no, he bailed last time. I am not taking him with me. And uh, what ended up happening was they split, they split up uh, amicably, split up, decided that they're going to go their own ways. And so uh, Barnabas took uh, John Mark with him, and then um, Paul took Silas with him on their way, right? Fast forward a little bit in time, and then we see also a text where Paul is having to go to Peter and approach him about him not living in, in a step with the gospel in regards to the way they relate to the various, um, the various ethnicities and races amongst them, specifically to those who are not Jewish. And he had to confront him about that, and so they had conflict about that. Um, but but this, this, this reminds me of something, the, just the cyclical nature of these things. We know in a, in a message by Paul in one of his writings that he and John Mark actually, actually reconciled. And we also know that he became a disciple of, uh, of Paul. But then here we see him with Peter, with whom Paul also had words, hard words with, who also reconciled. And so I show that just to show this, this incredibly tangled web of relationships that can get really sideways with one another sometimes are not sideways with one another right now. Why? This reminds me that the gospel that he just talked about just a minute ago, I don't know if you saw this, but he says, my brother Sylvanus helped me write this, faithful brother, written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. What is the true grace of God? The gospel. He said, I've just gone through talking about the gospel and how it works itself out and weaves itself into the life of a church that's living in exilic life as exiles. And what he said there, he says, I've just told you the gospel and how it does that. He says, that gospel doesn't say it, but by virtue of mentioning John Mark here, he's, he's reminding us. This gospel is able to break or to take broken trust and heal it. It is. It's, it's amazing what it can do. The gospel has no limits as to what it can mend. And I see John Mark, I see Peter and how they relate and how they related to Paul and Paul to them and this, this tangle of relationships that have kind of come full circle and they work together with no problem. Do you have a hopelessness where maybe a trust is broken? Can I just encourage you to just again like a child receive 
what the gospel tells us to be true and that it does have the potential to really mend and to forge the partnerships the way they should be, even when they scuffle every once in a while or maybe even are broken every once in a while. Anyway, good reminder for me, good reminder for you, I hope. Um, Those are my last observations I want to hit before I get into the meat of what we're dealing with today. Remainder of our time, I want to move back to our main theme for today's TEDx and what it looks like to live a life of influence as an exile. What does that even look like to be influential uh, in this world as exiles? Um, Because, like I said before, most people think that when power is gone, influence is waning, influence is gone, influence is hard, it doesn't exist. Um, We just have to live as non-influencers, and that's actually not the case. That's actually not the case. Again, we're going for true soul-shaping influence, not influence by the bill of goods you've been sold by culture. Influence that's true and soul shaping actually has longevity to it. Um, and I think it's important to note that he begins, um, he begins by saying that uh, this kind of influence has to begin with something of what we might call an incarnational modeling of the gospel. An incarnational modeling of the gospel. Let me explain that, break that down just a little bit. If you don't know what incarnational means, um, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, the Advent story, we call it the incarnation. What we refer to as the incarnation is Jesus leaving his place in heaven and entering human flesh. That's the incarnation. It's basically taking taking what he was and entering into uh, something that necessarily has a foreign nature to it for him. And so he enters human flesh in a broken world, having come from heaven, the place of God, the place of his true Uh, self, his true being, and he comes to a place that he did not break, but he will heal. Um, That's the incarnation. So what we are going to see in this text is really a entering into a world that no longer is our home. We're exiles, right? And so we actually got to be, live as exiles. That means incarnational living. We're entering skin that is not quite our own or doesn't quite fit the way it used to maybe prior to trusting and following Jesus. And so this incarnational modeling is about giving a picture of the kingdom of God. Basically what it looks like when the gospel has its way, not just with me, but with a lot of us together. And what it looks like. That's the kingdom of God, by the way. If you didn't know what it was, it's, it's when the people of God are living out the gospel of Jesus uh, with one another. And the result is something of the kingdom of God is breaking through. And it's showing them the way life should be. It's a counterculture, if you will, to what is natural or normative about our world and our culture. Um, and he starts with the top in a church's life, meaning the top in terms of responsibility and authority, and that is an elder. What does it look like to exercise influence in a way that's not idolatrous or dependent on power? Well, he goes immediately to those who are going to have uh, instantly the most influence within a church's life, and he goes after them um, with some very specific words. And he starts this way. He says, shepherd God's flock among you. (laughs) 
First of all, it's, it's, I, I didn't mention this in the first service, but it's important to recognize it's God's flock, okay? That's the first thing, not mine, uh, not yours, not anyone's. It's God's flock. But it is a specific flock among you, among you. And I don't, I don't say these things because of um, the fact that we've announced that Greg is now under a 30-day consideration, final consideration to elder in our church. If I did that, we could just bring Greg in here and just I'll preach to Greg. Um, I'm preaching this because this is actually important for us. This is a part of our scriptures, and it was meant for all of us to be have ears in on. Okay, And also there's a reason why he starts here. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. And so the flock among you. Um, and so what's so important about being uh, the kingdom of God, a people that live out the life of the gospel uh, with one another um, in front of the world, is that it is a local people. <laughs> the way in which the world is made up today, uh, the communication devices we have, uh, the means of communication, the way in which we can um, basically broadcast ourselves uh, all over the world, um, the way in which we can uh, be in a meeting online here, but actually physically be in another place, uh, really speaks to a sense in which we can talk ourselves into being omnipresent people. You know what I'm saying? But God's omnipresent. You're not. Google video does not make you omnipresent. It does not. It makes you clever as a society. It makes you technologically advanced as a society. It does not make you omnipresent, though. But we can kind of live under the illusion we can be all places at once, be multiple places at once. And this just boils it down to some simple things that I think we forget sometimes. And that is part of showing the kingdom of God, the gospel having its way in a people, is we model living like we're actually in a place and in a time, and amongst a people. <laughs> we live local. We live present. And I love this, because he goes after the elders, he says, you've got to actually be first in line in this. And I think this is especially a good word for those in any form of influence by way of role in today's world, because um, it would be so easy to even from this, this place right here on this music stand to try to pastor a church that is not you. To pastor a church that is either in here or maybe out there. To have digested far too many tweets and posts and Instagrams this week that is probably not healthy and preach to that. To watch the news all week long, every morning, every evening. To listen to the radio, whatever your variety, from NPR all the way off to the, the channels. <laughs> and to preach to that group. Because Let's be honest, it's easy as global citizens to live 
globally and to sometimes just forget the local. To forget, I'm not just talking about local as in DFW. I'm talking about the local as in within the, next, the five miles you live. That there are things going on. There are situations happening to your next door neighbor. <laughs> but man, you have solved the problems for the civil roar in a country that's 2,000 miles away. If we would just do this. Meanwhile, you haven't thought about what it looks like to walk next door to your neighbor five seconds. <laughs> you get what I'm saying, though? I mean, this, we're talking about local people among you. You live among a people. Live amongst that people. Live encouragingly amongst that people. Live robustly amongst that people. Be among the people of God. And so he says an elder needs to do that, which means you know them, they know you. You preach as if they're your target, not as if another church or group of people are the target. A lot of kids, a lot of guys in my stream, um, and, and some of you don't know this, so just, yeah, you don't have to know this, but uh, just FYI, there's a lot of guys in my stream who might ha pastor a church in the suburbs. But I, I've heard them preach, and I've actually had to review some future church planters preach who are planting in suburbs. And I've listened to them preach, and it sounds like they're preaching to a center city urban hipster. And I said, remind me again, where are you planting? The suburbs of X city. Well, I preach to those people too. You realize that you and I are the same. We're preaching to suburban straits, right? Not urban hipsters. And anyway, interesting conversation. But it's interesting how we are so easily moved to another grouping of people that are not who we are around. Or we want to shape ourselves, our churches in that, because we saw something we liked. He tells pastors, you got to model this. Live locally with who is there. One of the interesting things about our community that I've found a couple times is that I've been in people's homes who are not followers of Jesus. And at least on two occasions, I've seen them playing music from a local Christian radio station. <laughs> Christian music. Do you go to church? No, no. Oh, I just like it. It's real positive music. That's my neighborhood, man. That's my neighborhood. Now, they're not, they're, they're clever hipsters sitting on the corner talking about how Starbucks is the man and you shouldn't drink there. Just be amongst who you are. Be amongst who you are, he says. I pray I do this. And there's a degree to which you can be known and know people. Um, when you're in a position of influence in a, in a church, and uh, hopefully Greg and Kim and myself know this, we can't know everyone completely and 100%, and they can't know us completely 100%, but you're public, and you should be at least publicly known on some level, right? Um, I love what he says there, though. Uh, he kind of finishes off this idea of the elder being this um, kind of this trendsetter in this. Um, and he has really three things to say to him when he says those not statements. 
when he says, um, not doing this out of a compulsion, not out of greed, and not lording it over those trust entrusted to you. Uh, the emphasis is actually not on the nots. It's actually on the what they should be doing. And so I'm going to take it from that angle. And really what he's saying here is saying, do your role. Do your role. Take your responsibility for directing leading, leading people in the gospel to look like kingdom of God people. Direct them to that. Direct them to the gospel. Take them to the waters of the gospel and help them understand what it looks like to live the gospel out, that kingdom of God kind of life together. Not because you need a job. Actually enjoy what you're doing. Do it eagerly. Enjoy it. Don't be that guy who just needs a job, you know, who just needs a paycheck. And don't do it because it's just your one way to obtain some sort of center of control or power in your life and all other areas are out of power and control. Do it because you believe you really can be a good example. You can be the model that people could use. Do it because you get up in the morning and you want to be a model. And ironically, I don't know if you've seen this and already figured out the cyclical nature of it. If this is the model, then this is not exclusive to elders, is it? You model it because this is something that's supposed to be reproducible on every day Joe and Mary in the church. All of us, all of us should then eventually model, should eventually do our part, should eventually enjoy our part, should eventually embrace being an example to others. Because we want others also to know what it looks like to live out the gospel, look like kingdom of God people if they've never, never seen it before. Talking with a guy this week who was talking about how a particular area of life, he was wondering, what does it look like to even live like that in terms of the gospel? And it's a great question. But I think a key part of that is us, we actually break that down and do that together. And sometimes those things take time, but bottom line is we take the time to do it together and figure out what certain things look like, especially when it's not clear or not as plain or there's not as many models around to actually follow. Then he goes on. He says, in the same way you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And when he's talking about younger, he's not talking about younger in age. He's talking about a neophyte, someone who's new in the faith. Someone who's newer in the faith. So what he's done here, he's taken someone who might be kind of at the most influence point in a church's life and those who probably are at the least influence part in the life. And he does this occasionally in the scripture. The Lord takes these extremes and the, the implication is that this has something to say to all of us through the spectrum, <laughs> from, from what he's saying to elders to what he's saying to someone who's younger or someone who's a newbie or fresh, as the word can be translated, in the faith. And what does he say? Be subject to the elders. Doesn't say anything more. Be subject to the elders. Sounds simple, but it's not actually just simple. It actually feeds right back into what he just told the elders. He's saying, be willing to take a model and do it. Basically, be subject to that model and do it. Live out that gospel life that shows the kingdom of God. Why? Because then they repeat the cycle and show someone else 
the gospel life that shows the kingdom of God. He said, this is the kind of influence that you and I should be after. I want to be able to show people what it looks like when the gospel is winning and having its way and showing the best of the kingdom of God and all it has to offer to other people and show them what it looks like and show it off. And for anyone who might come in here, and you may be here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you came in here, just so that you know by full disclosure, Christians are supposed to be ready and willing to receive those who do not believe as they believe and to show them the results of what it looks like when a life has been touched by the Lord. Part of that is worship. Our worship is actually supposed to show something of that. It's supposed to show an intensity of what we believe, whether it be in song, prayer, or the reading of the scriptures and the preaching of the scriptures. And then he goes on, he says, all of you clothe yourselves. And the operative phrase here is all of you. So if you didn't catch that he was going from elders to the, to the least influence, he's like, oh, in case you missed that, all of you now, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, before we close out on this and the next few sentences, this is really interesting what it has just done here. Because what he has told us, he's, he's given us kind of an arena, a sphere of influence with one another. And, and just by happenstance, if someone who is, a, who is not a believer in Jesus comes through our doors, comes to our services, and that happens every week, right? Like I said, there's some of you here who don't believe, and you, you come, and praise be God, I'm glad you're here. You're not here for no reason. You're here for a reason. They come through these doors, and we have like this crazy opportunity that we should never want to miss. And that is to, in whatever way, whatever slight way, we can show something of what it looks like when God gets a hold of someone's heart and changes it. And what that looks like as kind of a culture, a community, a people, a family. And that it looks so different than the communities and families and peoples and cultures that we normally interact with. It is supposed to feel different to look different. But here's the truth. Most people will not walk through these doors who do not trust Jesus. In other words, the only op I will have is going out during the regular week, just like you, and being scattered throughout my community. We have a unique opportunity when we come together to show something of a holistic picture of the kingdom of God breaking through but when we leave, the kingdom of God goes with us. But make no mistake, I'm not the same with my, uh, my wife with me. And I'm not the same without you and you and you and you and you with me. Because we are collectively something that we're not when we're apart. So while the kingdom of God goes with me, it doesn't go with me in a holistic way that it shows up here on Sunday morning. It doesn't. It doesn't. It just doesn't. And that's why I think it's really interesting the turn he makes because it says, all of you, clothe yourself in humility. Because guess what, friends? As an exile, you can always take humility with you. 
not only can you have humility here, you can take humility out there and you're going to show something, posture yourself in such a way that you become an exile of influence. Just watch. Humility is in short supply, folks. Very few people meet humble people anymore. He says, this is, this is the way you go. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think about what that means. Think about what that means. He's basically saying pride puts us in God's opposition path. Pride puts us in God's opposition path. Pride is when we think we know all the answers. Pride is when we are not positioned to be learn, learners or be corrected. Pride is when we know the full story already. Neighbors, dogs, digging through to my yard. I know the full story. They're bad dog owners is what they are. Do I? How often do you think you know the full story on other people? Or you've already created the narrative of the other person? Just me? Do it way too much. That's pride. It's pride to believe there's nothing in other people's stories that can't be informative to us. That's probably why we don't listen to one another very well. Or why we don't ask good questions to one another and actually act interested in each other's lives as well as we, we ought. Every sentence is a way so that I can talk about me or my story or my version of the narrative I think I'm seeing in your life. He says, though, grace to the humble. Humility puts us in the pathway of God's grace. Thank the Lord. <laughs> because we receive and experience grace for our own errors, right, guys? Yeah? And we are able to receive and thus give grace away when we receive grace for our own errors and our own wanderings. Sometimes we have little grace to give others because we're never humble enough to enjoy the reception of God's grace ourselves. It's prideful people who do not need the grace of God. And so he ends on this. This is very informative, and this is a good charge to go, to go and to scatter for the remaining week. Something good to pray and think and meditate on. Um, if you had something you wanted to walk away from besides what we've talked about to this point, uh, these last four things are really, really good. Um, when he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now, whether you caught it all, he gave us really kind of four little anchors to hold on to about what it looks like to enter and walk the path of humility as exiles. What does it really look like to enter and walk the path as exiles? 
First, it begins with understanding who we are in respect to who God is and his mightiness. See what that is? We don't humble ourselves until we start with God. (laughs) He could have said anything about God. He could have said the graceful hand of God. He could have said the merciful hand of God. He could have said anything. But he said the mighty hand of God. Because power is such the addiction of prideful people, he says, meditate on God's might and just see if that won't shrink you a little bit. See if you might finally shrink to the size you really ought to be. See if that won't humble you. That's where we start. So maybe to this week we start by just really reflecting and meditating and reading on God's mightiness and recalling who we actually are in his sight, yet we're still treasured by him, still loved by him, still his image. And then he goes on, he says, and cast your cares on him, your anxieties. One of the biggest power moves in our society is to take our anxieties and learn how to manage them, deal with them, sometimes medicate them. And by the way, There are physiological issues that people have that require medication. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about self-medication. I'm talking about finding ways to dull ourselves because that's the way we manage anxieties. Finding ways to rise above in victory over anxieties. He says, no, that's what prideful people do. Humble people cast their cares on the Lord because he cares for them. That tells me two things. He cares for me more than I care for myself. Pride says I care for myself more than God cares for me. And pride also says God's not quite caring for me enough. Humility goes back to God caring for me and being my anxiety pressure valve release, ultimate pressure valve release. It is a move of humility to cast your cares on God. Because it says he cares about me more than me and cares about me more than I can imagine him caring about me. So some of us will need to continue and cast cares that we haven't cast in years upon the Lord this week. And then this is the thing it ends with. Two things, really. But it might be instructive to you to know this, that the two things both have to do with spiritual warfare. Both of them have to do with the devil. In other words, on the path to humility, he has overloaded our pathway with talk on the spiritual realm and our enemy, the devil, and what he does, what he wants to do to our souls. That's instructive for this reason. He starts off by saying, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Be alert to the fact that you have an enemy after you. What's the opposite of being alert and sober? Being dull and drunk, right? Basically, he's saying this. He's saying dull and drunk people when it comes to the spiritual realm believe the spiritual realm has no bearing on them or it has nothing to do with them. 
or has no sights set on them. And he's saying, you're not immune. You're not immune to the influence, the oppression, and possibly being manipulated and used by the devil. None of you. The minute you think you are, you're on the pathway of pride. Be alert. Be sober because he's always manipulating and guess what? He's smarter than you. So be alert that he's out there to manipulate and to use and to manage and to press you into his service. Even if you're a follower of Jesus, he wants to press you into his service. And the last thing he says about that, not just to be alert, not just to be sober-minded, actively resist him. Resist him. That's important because oftentimes we believe if we just outlast the enemy, if I can just outlast him, he'll go away. He'll leave me alone. If I do this or that, he'll go away or leave me alone. If I build a better defense, he'll leave me alone. But he's saying, no, no, you actually got to actively resist him. I can hold a weight above my head only so long before I got to let it go. He can hold that thing all day long. And so I don't have a choice. I have to resist him. He's not going away. He's not going away. You got to get aggressive. He tells you a pathway to it. Your only work of aggression, by the way, in resisting him is throwing yourself, heaping yourself upon the Lord to be your power. (laughs) And that's where it would go. And so this pathway to humility ends with us truly appreciating the nature of the spiritual realm and its influence and ways in our life and not being dull or ignoring it or treating it as if it's some sort of novelty of our faith. Because it's not a pet you can pet. It bites. It devours. And our only defense is humble submission to the Lord, that he be our power as we are attacked. I love that it ends there and then goes on with the final greetings. But it ends there good because it really gives us something to move on with this week. Maybe this week you really need to begin seeing, being alert to, and learning what it looks like to actively resist the influence of the dark world on our souls. Because guess what? In the same way we are being called here to soul-shaping true influence, godly influence, There is an influencing force also after us trying to shape our souls. Resist him. That's a good discipline for the week.